All right, well, let's continue our study in the Confession of Faith this morning. We are in chapter number eight of Christ the Mediator, and we are on paragraph number three. And we're dealing this morning with the subject or the thought of the suitability of Christ for the work. The suitability of Christ for the work. Uh, anytime we see those words such as suitability, and even the word work, uh, we understand that it, it tells us that there are requirements. Uh, there is a requirement that he or the person who does that work is qualified for that work. Uh, they are also equipped to do that work. And so as we think about of Christ as the mediator, uh, we have studied the first two paragraphs, and this morning as we look at paragraph number three, I want to read through the entirety of the paragraph, and then we will take it apart again as we did last week uh, by using uh, some of these uh, statements and expressions. So paragraph three of chapter eight says this, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Now, one of the key expressions and one of the key phrases that's found in this particular paragraph is there on the third line where it says, anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. One of the main themes of paragraph three is the reality of the Spirit-filled Christ. The Spirit-filled Christ. We are tempted often to forget the work of the Spirit in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we are quick to just so separate the Holy Spirit away from Christ that we often fail to remember that if it was not for the work of the Holy Spirit, even Christ could not have done the work in which he was called unto. What this paragraph is reminding us with is it is, it is reminding us again of the entire unity of the Godhead, the Trinity. Paragraph 3 makes mention of the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the work. This suitability to carry out as the mediator, notice as we've learned, was found in, his, in the, the putting together of his human nature and his divine nature. And as we study this this morning, we understand that there's, a, there's a, really three main uh, categories that these verses are going to point us to as we think about the suitability of Christ for this work. First of all, we're going to consider the nature of his character. All right, the nature of his character. Then we'll, then we'll consider the purpose of his grace. And then we'll consider the accomplishment of this work. So first of all, we need to understand why is Christ suitable for this work of mediator? 
Again, we see as we consider the nature of his character, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. Now notice what Jesus was sanctified and anointed with. With the Holy Spirit above measure. When you see that phrase, above, above measure, this means without limits. The Holy Spirit and his work in and through Christ was not limited. When you see that above measure, and we'll see verses that talk about this. So when we see that, what the, what the paragraph is saying, what the confession is saying that will be shown scripturally, is that the Holy Spirit, without limit, was in Christ. Christ possessed the Spirit of God in its entirety. There's a temptation to say he only had part of the Spirit. No, this actually tells us that it was above measure. He had an unlimited possession of the Holy Spirit of God. Now that's very important because again, we're tempted to separate the work out. Now the verses that your confession will point to regarding this phrase are Psalm 45.7, Acts 10.38, and John 3.34. So we're going to look at all three of those this morning. So let's first of all go to Psalm 45.7. And we'll consider these verses not in a, a deep way this morning, but we'll, we'll use them and see them as they connect. And the psalmist in Psalm 45 uh, is writing about the eternal kingdom. And he's acknowledging uh, the majesty of God. He's identifying the throne of God. And he's identifying something about God in verse number 7 of Psalm 45.7. It says, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. We see the word anointed there again, and that, that word uh, anointed has the, the idea of empowerment. Uh, it, it's not some uh, mystical thing. There are different denominations and different religions that say, I'm, a, I'm anointed. And, and they are, they're, they're meaning it in some really mystical backwards way. The word anointed here simply means empowered. Now, we see how that, how that is connected. It says about Jesus, he was sanctified and anointed or empowered with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when we say, where did Jesus get the power to do this work? It came through the power of the Holy Spirit. The second reference is in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Acts 10, verse 38. Look at all three of these. Acts 10, 38. And this is Peter preaching to a man by the name of Cornelius. This is a, an amazing passage and chapter of Scripture. It's, uh, Cornelius, you know, had the vision, and uh, he's a man that's described as one who fears God, and uh, Peter is told to go visit Cornelius, and as he's speaking with him is where we see the context of Acts 10, 38. Uh, let's just read a couple of the, the previous verses here. At verse 34, it says, And Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. 
The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed, there's that word empowered, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. You cannot even separate the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in Jesus performing miracles. Again, we're tempted to separate them out. We're tempted to say this was a work of Jesus, this was a work of the Spirit. Biblically speaking, Jesus' work that he was doing was because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we cannot discount the reality of the Holy Spirit's work uh, in the lives of people, especially through the ministry of Jesus Christ. John 3.34, John 3.34, and John 3, probably the most familiar of the chapters in the book of John. This is part of John's testimony about Jesus, speaking of who he is. And it says there in verse 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. There, that, that by measure, that's again is without limit. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So we see part of the nature of his character here is that he is certainly has been sanctified and anointed. Okay, now the word sanctified means to be set apart. Now, when we see the word sanctified in Scripture, we understand that there is a positional sanctification which upon our conversion, we are set apart, uh, we are set apart and we're declared sanctified. But there's also a sanctification process that is taking place in our lives now as we are being conformed into the image of Christ. When we think about the word sanctification here, we also need to understand that, number one, Jesus Christ did not need to be sanctified in the sense of being positionally set apart, nor did he need to be moving more and more to be like God, because he is God. So in the context of Jesus and his sanctification, we are talking about his qualification, his unique qualification. You see, Jesus Christ was the only one who was qualified to carry out the work of the mediator. He was uniquely qualified. When we read John 3.16 and we think about, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the reality here is not so much on the emphasis that he just had one in number Son, but he had a unique Son. That's a, that is a very particular difference we need to remember. Many people just consider he just had one son. Yes, that's true, but the spiritual depth is much deeper than that. He had a uniquely qualified son to accomplish the work of redemption. So Jesus' suitability for the work of mediator is found in his sanctification. Again, not being sanctified like you and I need to be, but sanctified by being set apart. Part of the nature of his character, again, is that word anointed, which means anointed or empowered with the Holy Spirit. So the emphasis here is that Christ did many things through the power of the Spirit. 
Now, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke demonstrates, probably in the clearest way, the work of the Holy Spirit that's being done, in, the work of the Spirit being done through Christ. So when you read the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see more clear demonstrations of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus than any of the other Gospels. Not that they're not there, but Luke just pays a particular emphasis on this idea of anointed with the Holy Spirit. So it's very important that we get that concept. So connected with that first phrase, anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now our confession points us back to Colossians 2.3 for that expression. Having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 3. Paul is, again, he's writing to believers at Colossae. Uh, he is writing to people who are already in the faith. Uh, this is not an evangelistic part of the letter that he's writing in Colossians. He's reminding those who are already in the Spirit. All right? He's talking about people who know what it is to have the Spirit of God. In verse 1, he says in chapter 2 of Colossians, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and your steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul proceeds into the following verses to remind them how they ought to walk. He's telling them that because he can speak to them as people who have an understanding of being in the spirit. And that knowing that in Jesus Christ is, in fact, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge connected with the reality of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We're not told scripturally to do anything apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's an important concept to get. We are never told in Scripture to do something in our own strength, in our own power, or even according to our own will. We're given the commandments to do these things because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit of God. If we try to do anything for God apart from the empowering of the Spirit, it is fruitless. It will produce absolutely nothing. And had it not been for the Spirit of God, even Jesus Christ himself could not have produced. It is empowering by the Spirit of God. And very important that we keep these things in mind. These are not just verses that, uh, just kind of things to consider. These are great truths of Scripture. Now notice connected with that, having in him all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. Where was the determination made that in Christ all wisdom and knowledge and fullness would dwell? According to the Father. It pleased the Father. So, this continues, and we can look at Colossians 1.19, which is the reference that now we see. So Paul, in that same book, in the first chapter, says this. 
Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Now the word fullness, we understand, also acknowledges everything that God is. So you could not even declare Jesus Christ as God if there was not the empowering of the Spirit. It is impossible for us to separate the Trinity in the work of God. So when we talk about Christ's suitability, we're not just talking about him just going rogue and doing it on his own. We're talking about the entirety of the Godhead working through Jesus and the empowering and the sanctification being done by the Spirit of God. Is that, is that concept relatively clear? It's, it's really important because it's a foundational piece to everything we're talking about. So this is, these are the descriptions of his, of his nature. But it goes on to the end that being holy, harmless, and undefiled. Now, again, we're talking about the nature and his suitability. That points us to Hebrews 7.26. Hebrews 7.26 that speaks of Jesus Christ, his holiness, his harmlessness, and how Jesus Christ is this unchangeable priesthood. Now, the, the confession points us to Hebrews 7.26. Again, let's just read a couple verses previous to that and a couple verses after. Verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, that's a reference to Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself." For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. So, of course, the confession references verse 26. Remember, we're talking about his suitability. There was an empowerment by the Spirit, no doubt. But there also what made Christ suitable for the work of the mediator is the reality of his holiness, his harmlessness, and being undefiled. This priest had to be perfectly righteous. This mediator, in order to meet the suitability requirements of a mediator, had to be perfectly holy in all things and at all times. Now there we understand right there that even though you and I are empowered by the Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot be perfectly holy we cannot be perfectly undefiled. We cannot be perfectly harmless except through Christ. Because in the, the mysterious work of God, one day we're going to be presented before God holy, undefiled, and blameless because of the work of Jesus Christ. And then it connects this thought, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So we move into the reality of what he's doing and the purposes, but this, this last idea here is given, us in, given to us in John 1.14. This, this idea of full of grace and truth. What makes 
Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, full of grace and full of truth? Well, because the Bible declares it. (laughs) That's really the short answer. Uh, In John 1, beginning in verse number 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is a reference to Christ. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace, full of truth. That's what the confession ties all these things together that gives us the nature of Jesus' character and his suitability. We see that he is united to the divine. He's sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. In the, with the end purpose or the end goal of being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace, and full of truth. That's the nature of the character of Christ with regard to his suitability for the work of mediator. The second half or the remainder of this particular paragraph deals with the purpose of grace and the accomplishment of this work. So the the confession changes a bit now in what it's talking about. We've been dealing about his nature. Now we're dealing with the purpose of his grace. So the first phrase, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. The reference points you to Hebrews 7.22. All right, Hebrews 7.22 Again, as we consider this, we look a little bit deeper at this particular thought. Um, This is right before what we just read in Hebrews 7.26. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 is giving us the background of uh, uh, what the king of righteousness is and a surety of a better testament. So that's the context that comes up here. And he's been talking about Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek, this priest that had no beginning and had no ending. And in verse 21, it says, For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Jesus' work in its simplest terms, was to do the work. It was not just a promise that I'll try to keep it, I'll make an oath to keep it. It was a guarantee that this purpose or this work will be done. There has never been a time in even pre-human history where God has considered, even for a millisecond, of doing, not doing what he's promised to do. Again, we live in human realm, obviously. We change our mind sometimes every minute. There are some days you and I change our mind every minute of a day. We're sure, we're not sure. We think we know, we don't know. We do know. 
We set, on a, we set on a course and we think, okay, we're on the right course. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to stick to this course only to change it a week later. This surety or this guarantee, this suitability that Jesus Christ would not be like just a regular priest who would take an oath and then maybe not live up to it. But his suitability was also found in the reality that he cannot lie. And if he cannot lie, it uniquely qualifies him again to be suitable for this work. He didn't come to partially do the work. He didn't come to share the work. It's difficult for us as believers to understand that Jesus Christ is not depending upon us to do the work. He has not said, now here's 75% my part, you do 25% your part, especially when it comes with regard to the work of a mediator. He is, he is not asking us to even, even pretend like we're in the role of mediator between man and God. He, he doesn't command us to stand between the sinner and God and be the point of reconciliation. Again, we've talked about the fallacy of the, of the Catholic Church in that area, that one area alone. That you would put a man and consider a person behind a screen worthy of the mediatorial role. He can't possibly be a mediator. He can't be a mediator. Because he does not, he's not suitable for the work. He's not qualified for the work. That man that sits behind that screen is trying to make himself suitable and trying to qualify himself. But he's not. Think about the heresy that's going on when a person maybe unknowingly, maybe ignorantly sits on one side of that booth and says through that screen, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. And that father hears what he says and then determines your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine what he's created in the spiritual inner turmoil of that person who's heard that? Folks, I'm telling you, people that leave those confessional booths leave truly believing my sins have been forgiven by the mediator sitting on the other side of the screen. That mediator has done absolutely nothing for them. He does not have the power to forgive sins. I don't have the power to forgive your sins. You could come and confess to me every sin you've ever committed, and I could pray with you about getting victory over those, but I could never look to you and say, brother or sister, I forgive you. One reason alone, I am not sinless. There's other reasons, but that one alone prevents me from granting you forgiveness. And by the way, it's not just Catholicism that works in this realm of individuals acting as mediators. If I somehow believe that my works save me, I'm acting as my own mediator. If I believe that any of my works actually brings reconciliation between myself and God, I am, in a sense, taking on a part of a mediatorial role that I am not suitable or qualified to do. Now, works are what? They're the result of our conversion. Fruit is the result of our salvation, not in the work of a mediator. 
So these are very important that he, notice it says a confession, Christ might be thoroughly furnished to execute. The word execute means perform. The word office means function. So Christ is thoroughly furnished to perform the function of mediator. It's important to distinguish between those two. A man can hold an office without the ability to function in that office. Many people in the world's system hold an office that don't function. Right? I have a title, but I don't function in that title. Jesus is not just in the office. He is the actual functioning mediator and surety, it says. Now notice, connected to that, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father. More evidence that Jesus did not get up one day, pardon that expression, and simply say, I think I'm going to take on myself the office of mediator. No, what the confession and the Bible backs up is that he did not take this on himself, but was called by his Father. Hebrews 5.5 Again, with regard to the priesthood of Jesus Christ in the office of priest. So also, verse, six, verse 5, Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now there's that word begotten that ties us back to John 3.16, his only begotten son. God the Father uniquely called His Son unto the work, Thou art my Son. When Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, it was God the Father who called down from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Do not try to separate Jesus Christ doing the will of the Father not just in going to the cross, but in everything he did. And Jesus Christ did all the offices, all the functions, and performed all the work of a mediator, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't just try to make these three different gods acting in three different roles. They are all working together to carry out the work and the purposes of God. The purpose of grace is to do the work of God. Grace is not just about getting you to heaven. Grace is about accomplishing the work and the purposes of God. So we see the purposes. We see the means of that appointment. The means of that appointment was to drive us to understand that there is no possible way to be reconciled to God except through Jesus Christ as the mediator. Who also, now the, the who also in the confession is connected to the thereunto called by his father, who also, that means this is the father acting, who also put all power and judgment in his hand. Again, these mysteries of God. Remember all the times we saw when we studied through the book of John, how many times we saw that expression, I and my father are one. I've come to do the will of my father. These were not just token expressions. He actually meant what he said. He said, I'm doing these things because the Father has commanded me to do these things. 
I'm following the plan and the purposes because God the Father has told me to do these things and that I'm going to do those things empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is not this idea of, of Jesus and then God the Father and that, that their, their purposes are in conflict. There has never been a controversy or a conflict between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Never once has there been, I, I, I want to reconsider my role. I want to reconsider what you've asked me to do. I want to reconsider my work as mediator. I've decided I'm going to do something else. Now that seems foolish to us, but some of the doctrine that's being taught in churches, that's exactly what it's doing. Is that the only way you can arrive at the answers and the conclusions they get to is you have to separate these three out and make them contradict one another. Jesus Christ never did anything that contradicted the Father's plan. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something contra contrary to God. The old cliche, if I had a dime for every time someone told me, the Holy Spirit told me to do this, I would be a rich man. Because what God quoted or told them is contrary to the Word of God. That didn't come from God. Because it would contradict Him. He doesn't contradict Himself. So when we read these things and we say, and, and verses will back this up, where did Jesus Christ get the power and the authority to judge? He got it from the Father's hand. John 5, verses 22 through 27, the, the confession references John 5, 22 and 27. We'll read the, that entire passage, John 5, 22 through 27. Again, I think our, our study spending all that time going through the book of John really helped settle a lot of the things we're talking about today. Again, it's really, this, is, this is really tough to separate. Let me just point a couple of the things out. Look at verse 17 of John 5. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only... Not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Just stop there and think about that for a minute. Jesus Christ can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the Father do. Think about the spiritual implications of that verse alone. For whatsoever, what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Whatever the Father does, whatever the Father says, that's what the Son is doing, and that's what the Son is saying. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead... Notice again, the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Even Jesus Christ cannot choose on his own whom he will raise from the dead if it's contrary to the Father's will. You see what's happening here? Whatever the Father says and does, Jesus is saying the same thing, that's what I say and do. Imagine how much... <laughs> How much confusion we would have in our world if that was actually the case we all operated by. 
Consistency. I said it, they say it, it's consistent. I don't get one message here, another message there. When I read the Bible, when I read about the Son, I'm reading what the Father's will is. I'm not reading it saying, I wonder how God the Father feels about what Jesus just said. Or I wonder if they, if they notified the Holy Spirit about what they're getting ready to do. Now I'm being a bit facetious, but you understand what I'm saying. They're all working in concert together. There is no separating. Jesus isn't going behind the Father's back and saying, now I'm a mediator in office, but I'm going to change the function of this a little bit. No, everything he says is what the Father said. For the Father, now notice this. Here's another one of those mind-blowing mysteries of God that people have asked me about, and I continue to say these are mind-blowing thoughts. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Now that's what the confession said too. God the Father put all power and judgment in His hand. So when it comes to judgment, I am going to be judged. Mankind will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because the Bible says the Father judgeth no man. He's committed it all into the hands of the Son. Why did he do that? Here's what the verse says. That all men should honor the Son. Someone says, why is all judgment put in the hands of Jesus Christ? So that men would honor the Son. That's the biblical answer. Your humanity wants to find a lot of human reasoning why, but the reason it is what it is, is because that all men should honor the Son. When I honor the Son, here's what's happening, even as they honor the Father. That's why it says it's impossible to give honor to God the Father and not honor the Son. That's why it is the pinnacle of heresy to say we believe in God the Father, but we don't acknowledge Jesus Christ, but we're religious, godly people. You're unsaved. You're not even a believer. You cannot just believe in God the Father and discount or disregard the Son. Nor can you do the reverse of that. You can't say, we, we're, we're just a Jesus church. There's no such thing as just a Jesus church. Because Jesus is saying and doing the things that His Father has told Him to do or has given to Him. Again, these, these are absolutely mind-blowing thoughts of man's perception of what God is and how God operates. Verily, verily, or no, here he says it. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in Himself. Try to write a term paper on that verse. Just that one verse. The Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself. And hath given Him, Christ, authority Here's that word, to execute judgment 
also because he is the son of man. There's the word execute that's also used in the confession to execute what? The office of mediator. To perform the function. Where did that authority, where did that right come from? From God the Father. The most familiar missions passage in all scripture behind John 3.16 is Matthew 28.18. Confession points back to the same thing with regard to that last phrase, who called by the Father, God the Father puts into Christ all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute or perform the same. Matthew 28.18. And Jesus came... And spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now what is, what is Jesus acknowledging? He's acknowledging that his power that he has to say what he's getting ready to say has been given to him. Given by whom? Given by the Father. And then he gives the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus, as he gives the Great Commission, acknowledges the entire Trinity before he gives the command for his apostles and disciples to even go. First of all, he acknowledges that the authority that I have to say this and the power I have to command of this of you is given to me by the Father. He's not saying I have power by my own judgment, by my own call, by my own calling. I have this power because it's been given unto me. Where is that power good for? In heaven and in earth. That is an all-encompassing statement that tells us that Jesus' authority is not just in heaven, and it's not just here on earth. It's in all places, all the entirety of the universe. You know, Jesus Christ has power and all authority even in the parts of the universe you and I don't even know exist. Isn't it amazing how mankind continues to be more and more surprised at how vast the universe actually is? We sit in amazement and in awe and we think, just when I think God can't get any greater, the universe expands more and more. We like to put Jesus, we like to put God in our own little box and say, Jesus has authority here, he has authority here, but over here, this isn't about God, this isn't about Christ here. No, the Bible says he has authority in all places and in everything. I've heard people say, Jesus has authority in my public life, but not in my private life. There is no such thing as public and private life with believers. that's my church life over here. This is my personal life. Your personal life and your church life are all being commanded and being given by God, not by our own desires. I believe that's exactly what Paul was dealing with when Paul was having trouble with those who would say, "Grace, grace gives me a license to sin. No, we understand that in the accomplishment of this work, it was Christ alone who was qualified to accomplish these things. 
And then Acts 2.36, our final reference for this morning. Acts 2.36. This is the, the day of Pentecost. So this is the, the, the mighty rushing wind we see come in in verse number 2. And Peter is, is standing up and he's, he's addressing the crowd and he is, he is preaching the truth to them. And the response that he gets is much the response that we hear today. Let's, let's drop back to um, let's drop back to verse 31 here of Acts 2. It says, "He seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses." Now, one thing I want you to notice. Peter is preaching about the truth of how did Jesus Christ raise from the, from the grave. He was raised by the power of God through the Father. His quickening, his empowerment, was by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus Christ did not just raise himself from the dead without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. But look what Peter goes on to say. Therefore, he identifies where Jesus is then and when he is, where he is now. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. To be Lord in Christ is the identification of the reality. He doesn't just have the power to redeem, but he also has the power to judge. He has the power to act in the role and authority of God. Now we notice the crowd's response to this in verse 37 now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we go on and we read, and there were many, it says in verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized. They continued steadfastly. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is to be. You see people continuing steadfastly in sound doctrine and in fellowship. The breaking of bread in prayers. And I think a phrase we miss when we consider the church and we consider the mediatory role of Christ. And fear came upon every soul. To think that the program and the purposes of God being carried out from the church are something that are insignificant or just optional or just something to be a part of your life is the exact opposite of what the purposes and plans of God was. I love this. And all that believed were together and had all things common. This is kind of a rabbit trail I'm on just for a moment, so bear with me. Everybody tries to figure out what's the perfect church look like? What's, the, what's a church that's functioning right look like? The final verses of Acts chapter number 2 give you the perfect picture of what a church is supposed to be. 
A church that's operating in the power of God, understands God the Father, understands God the Son, understands that we're doing this work in the power of the Holy Spirit. The perfect church, hypothetically speaking, looks like Acts chapter number 2. Look at the characteristics. Continued steadfast. Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, fear. All that believed were together, had all things common. Sold possessions and goods, parted them to all men, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Today's church movements are based on what can we do to make your church a little bit more exciting so you can draw more people unto yourself. The real functioning church doesn't need all that gimmicky stuff. It never has needed it. But we do need the mediatorial work of Christ. Because without him, all these, this perfect church is impossible. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I just want our church to grow. I want to see more people come. I want to see more people saved. Yeah, churches often believe that, but they have problems with verses 46, 45, 44, 43, 42. We just want to see the church grow. Listen, there's a way God has set out for it to be. Christ and His work, when we talk in Scripture about Him having the preeminence, He has the preeminence because He's the only one suitable for this work. He's the only one qualified. There's a lot more I could say, but we'll stop there for this morning. Next week, we'll move into paragraph number four. And again, we'll continue thinking. There's a lot of references for next week. So if you have, if you have a copy of this confession, I would encourage you that even before we get to next Sunday, read through the paragraph, read through the verses, okay? Because I think those, that's going to be the biggest help to us is being able to read through so you'll be kind of prepared for where we're going. I don't know if we'll cover every single verse. We're going to try to do that. But there are a lot of references to paragraph number four. Uh, again, continuing to deal with uh, Jesus Christ uh, and his identity in fulfilling this work. Okay, so let's stop there for this morning.